welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And last Sunday I directed our attention to the holiness of God and His demand, uh, His requirement for a blood sacrifice uh, to atone for, to cover, to appease God's wrath before entering His holy presence. The wages of sin, the, the, the price, the, the cost of sin is death. It's costly price. A true biblical faith therefore acknowledges that like the Old Testament sacrifices, God's sinless Son was literally slaughtered by evil men as He offered Himself to be nailed to a cross, serving as the spotless Lamb of sacrifice. In the words of John the Baptist, He who takes away the sin of the world. And that's what God did for us by giving us His Son. Christianity, in nearly all aspects, presents a, a serious and sobering picture. It truly does. Scripture says that Christ died for sins. It says that He wept. It says He kneeled to pray. It says He preached the gospel. It says after He was crucified, He breathed His last. You know, do you notice what Scripture never says? Never says that Jesus laughed. Isn't that interesting? Never says Jesus laughed. I find that fascinating because I laugh. I like to laugh. I like it when other people laugh. It's fun to laugh. I laugh a lot. I laugh aloud. If you're a new visitor, you know, we aren't always as dry, boring, and, and dusty as we may appear on some Sundays. We aren't that stiff. We're generally happy people. People who are joy-filled, great senses of humor. We enjoy laughing and having fun. Um, I have far more enjoyment with you folks than I ever did with my buddies back in college. Really, honestly. College for the unbeliever uh, isn't fun. You know, it's in many ways and for most crude for the unbeliever. As Christ is both divine, fully divine, and fully human, I'm pretty confident that at times Jesus laughed. Uh, I am. Uh, We see many biblical commands to rejoice. There is surely nothing irreverent or inappropriate about tasteful laughter. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 reminded us that there is a time to laugh. There is a time to cry, but there's also a time to speak, and then there's a time to remain quiet. There's a a time to listen, a time to listen. Our passage today opens with this statement, guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. You know, because we are permitted to laugh, it is sometimes suggested that we should never take anything serious. 
since we do have liberty in Christ, you know, some would imply that your know, life should just be a 24-hour uh, late-night comedy show. Should never take anything serious. Should never enjoy being serious or being restrained. Uh, some might say, not even in church. We should just always have a good time. That any sort of seriousness, uh, any sort of uh, of uh, serious serious mentality is is oppressive. It's been told. Churches shouldn't be that way. I've titled today's message, Draw Near to Listen. Draw Near to Listen. Remember last week I said I might title it The Sacrifice of Fools? We'll get there. We'll get there. But really this passage is all about listening and drawing near to listen. And I'm going to begin by reading us a quote. It's from Douglas O'Donnell, author of the Ecclesiastes edition of the Reformed Expositor's commentary. He is an excellent writer. He's written quite a few works. Younger fella. I've really learned to appreciate both him and Philip Ryken, who is the president of Wheaton College. Have you noticed I have not quoted John MacArthur very much recently? That, that's not by design. He does not have a commentary out on Ecclesiastes. In fact, as I checked his website... MacArthur's never preached through Ecclesiastes. It really surprises me. Um, his study Bible is helpful. It just doesn't go in very much depth. This Douglas O'Donnell, he's educated at Wheaton College. He, he got his master's at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, his Ph.D. at Aberdeen. Sharp fella. He's also senior VP at, at Crossway Publishers. And he writes this concerning this passage today. And I like... That, that he, though he's a scholarly guy, he's painfully honest here. He's really brutally honest. Those of us who are in Christ, have we changed over time? Are we exactly where we started uh, as a Christian? You know, some of us might have come from very loose backgrounds, theologically. Others might have come from very legalistic backgrounds. And over time, Christ has refined us. But he's very transparent here about where he used to be. And Douglas O'Donnell writes, quote, Many years ago, I was part of a wealthy suburban church that had sermon titles such as, What Would Jesus Say to Bart Simpson? And, and that for its youth day, had its teenagers stream down the aisles, dressed like inner-city gangsters, as they rapped out the opening, quote, hymn. They did so with associated gang-like hand gestures. More recently... I attended a church, he says, that, show, that showed hilarious homemade video clips to season the sermonette. I've also heard of one church that hands out free popcorn as you enter the sanctuary, and another one where everyone bounces around a beach ball during the worship band's performance. I saw one once that had a floating blimp that went around in the sanctuary and dropped basketball tickets to the people who were in attendance. O'Donnell writes, although these examples are perhaps extreme, they show a growing trend today as our churches overflow with folksy entertainment and raw authenticity. He says, we live in one of the most sacrilegious and blasphemous church cultures in the history of Christianity. No joke. It's the end of his quote. 
Consider O'Donnell's words as I read from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Solomon writes, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Wow. Wow. People have been taught that they should draw near to God by speaking, by expressing self openly through ecstatic emotion, by emptying their minds and vain repetition, or even through holy laughter. But King Solomon says we ought to be cautious of what we say. We better be careful... And keep our words to but a few. And he says, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen. Draw near to listen. We discovered last Sunday that the house of God, referring to uh, the temple of God, which signifies God's presence, during this time it was in Jerusalem. The design of the temple we learned last week was to amplify God's holiness how he was inaccessible and unapproachable without blood sacrifice, presented through a a priestly mediator. And Colossians 2 verse 17 says this, that all of that, it was all a foreshadow of the things that were to come. Uh, The substance, though, was in Christ. Christ is the true picture of that shadow in the Old Testament law. And the people of Israel... The people of God uh, would congregate at the temple. They would, they would attend the temple and draw near to listen to the word of God read. Jesus himself taught at the temple. Psalms were sung and heard at the temple. Israelites listened to prayers as they were offered by the priests. And a true believing Jew, what they would do is they'd draw near to listen. They'd draw near to listen and of course... That temple was destroyed in about 70 A.D. Yet the dwelling place of God, His temple, it didn't cease to exist. It just changed form. Through the indwelling Holy Spirit who was poured out at Pentecost, the people of Christ's church have become God's physical presence on earth. Consequently, then, local gatherings of spirit-filled believers all around the land, including this church right here, constitute God's temple today. We are God's temple. We are to be holy as God is holy. And Paul asks the Corinthians, this is 1 Corinthians 3.16, says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God 
and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The you there is describing, it's in the plural. It's describing all of us together. It's not in the singular, speaking to an individual person. It explains how we're joined in unity as the local gathering of God. When Paul therefore continues, he says, If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Again, all of that in the plural. That is what we are. We are the temple of God, and we are holy. When he says, don't destroy the temple of God, he's not talking about monitoring your cholesterol, folks. You know, each, each individual Christian is spirit indwelt. We are regenerated and dwelt by the Spirit of God. Later, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to not use their bodies as instruments of sin by joining themselves to a harlot. But Paul's concern to, to not destroy the temple of God is not centered around your personal physique, about how good you look. It isn't upon, uh, about looking down on a brother or sister who may have stored a few extra pounds for winter. It's not about that. It's not about how your individual body looks. Surely not about looking in the mirror every morning after going to the gym and adoring how great God's temple looks. Folks, there are far too many displays by people claiming to be Christians who show off their physiques, thinking it exemplifies some kind of uber-spirituality, an exhibition of God's temple. That, that's a problem. That's a problem. Our culture is all into it. That's idolatry. It's what it is. It's also a different sermon for a different text. But I want to amplify this. God's temple today, where New Testament Christians congregate, it's our assembly together. It is us coming together as a local church each and every week. And we still draw near to listen. Almost all of corporate worship is listening to God speak directly through His Word and listening to God speak indirectly through the voices of men, through the voices of humans. Our singing of songs and praises is listening. It's listening. You recognize that. Worship, folks, is not primarily about expressing ourselves and how we feel. The scriptural purpose of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, according to Colossians 3, verse 16, is to teach and admonish us. That, that's the purpose of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Therefore, we, we listen. We listen initially to the words prior to singing, uh, responding with thankfulness in our hearts. Hymns and songs of worship are a teaching ministry. I've said this multiple times before. When we sing, we are spiritually listening to the words. You saw it as Pastor Weiler was playing with the others there. We were reading the words. We were listening to what the words had to say on the screen. We're listening as we sing. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. Precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. As we sing that, we are listening. We are listening to God. Um, 
Scripturally, this is especially important. Worship music is a teaching device. It is a teaching device that functions very much like preaching. We listen to it. We learn from it. We hear the Word of God sung in a poetic type of fashion. Corporate prayer is also listening. Of course, the time of preaching is listening if you're not sleeping. But regardless of who is singing or praying or reading or preaching, we draw near to listen. We draw near to listen, uh, discerning scriptural truths that, that sanctify our hearts by the word of truth. We listen to discern truth from error. Judicious listening. It's indispensable. Indispensable to Christian worship. Do you know what else we listen for today? This one just just came to me uh, recently. Today we not only listen for error, we listen for omission. We listen for omission. That's a, that's a fact. What do you not hear on Sunday? Where is the reference to sin? Where is the reference to Christ? as fully God and fully man, the divinity of Christ? Where is the reference to salvation exclusively through faith alone in Christ alone? Where are the references to God's holiness? And as we assemble in the temple of God, it's almost entirely listening. We gather to learn, we gather to laugh, we live, laugh, and love, as it's so often said, we listen for scriptural to- truth that preserves us from the griev- grievous error of speaking impulsively, speaking empty, vain words. Solomon describes it as the sacrifice of fools. Sacrifice of fools. That is naive or uninformed speech. Solomon writes, Do not be hasty in word or, get this, impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. Folks, God knows what you're thinking about Him. God knows what you're thinking about His Son. He knows what you're thinking about His church. He examines, He knows and examines our hearts even before we speak. We should take care uh, both of our thoughts and of our words. In Luke chapter 18, there is a story that Jesus gives of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the publican, right? They both went up to the temple to pray, and there a Pharisee prayed many words, offering a whole list of accomplishments of self-praise, while the publican's words were just a few. Lord, be merciful on me, a sinner. Pharisees had a reputation of offering private prayers, personal prayers, aloud likely Jesus' story is intended to convey that that tax collector had heard what the Pharisee said when he's saying, I'm not a swindler, I'm not unjust or an adulterer, I do not withhold any of my offerings. And that tax collector learned through listening how unrighteous he was. He confessed himself to be all of that. He said, I'm mad, I'm unjust, I'm a swindler. 
I don't give God what I have promised or what the law requires. And in just a few short words, as a sinner, he became wholly dependent on the grace and forgiveness of a merciful God. And it was Jesus who said that it is this man, the tax collector, who went home to his church justified. A few simple words. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 assures that if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To be pleasing to God. We don't have to say a lot. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we don't have to say much? in order to be pleasing to God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 2 explains why. It's because God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. The reason that we listen first, the reason that we hear first, is we desperately need our words to be informed by God's word. We need to know what He says before we say our own words. They need to be informed and influenced by God's word. We learn through listening to God uh, how God dwells in heaven. Solomon's statement isn't meant to imply that, that God isn't everywhere or isn't omnipresent. Solomon surely recognized that his own father, King David, wrote Psalm 139, which magnifies both God's omniscience and God's omnipresence. Assuring that God knows everything and that by His Spirit He's present everywhere. Uh, King David wrote this, Even before there is a word on my tongue, Behold, O Lord, You know it all. Where can I go from Your Spirit? Or where can I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that is the place of the dead, Behold, You are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. You know, God's God's presence and Solomon's placement of God in heaven uh, contrasted to ours on earth. That's what it's meant to convey. It's given to convey God's superior perspective on everything. He sees it all. He knows it all. By His Spirit, He knows everything. He sees all things. Therefore, God doesn't need a whole lot of information from us. You don't need us to ramble on and on with empty words informing Him of things that we presume He doesn't know. For even before we utter those words, God, did you know? He says, yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. If we understand the nature of God, then through the receiving of God's word, then we understand. We understand why He already knows our heart. He knows our needs. He knows our circumstances. He knows our trials. He knows our temptations. Therefore, we can let our words be few. And as a result of listening to Scripture, our prayers become informed rather than impulsive. Holy rather than hasty. By contrast, the sacrifice of fools in this context, the sacrifice of fools, is the superficial, uninformed speech that is uttered to God in such haste 
that he doesn't even know what he's doing. The man doesn't know that he's even doing evil. Do you know why? Do you, do you notice why he doesn't know that he's doing evil? It's because he won't listen. He's unwilling to come and listen. Scripture assures the fool's ignorance does not equal innocence. Just because he doesn't know doesn't mean it isn't sin. His ignorance is actually evil, Solomon says. Boy, there's a whole sermon message right there. Ignorance is evil. Boy, John MacArthur, he could, he could parse that up and he could make that into a three-week series, couldn't he? Ignorance is evil. Ignorance isn't innocent. And the reason the fool doesn't take time to listen is because he, he, he has so much he needs to say. So much he needs to get off of his chest. Verse 3 says, The dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. You know, Hebrew, the Hebrew word effort there means hard work. Hard work. It's meant to suggest the vivid dreams that are experienced in the deep sleep. They're a result of much business going on. Translation might actually translate that business. This guy's a busy guy. Busy guy has lots of dreams. And in the passage, these dreams are not super, supernatural revelations from God. That's not what Solomon is talking about here. Dreams implies a fool who talks endlessly about his uninformed ideas. Uninformed ideas because he hasn't listened And the dreamer has a lot to say that he thinks everybody else needs to hear. Solomon clarifies by explaining in verse 3, the voice of a fool comes. That means that it's recognized. The voice of the fool is recognized through his many words. There's many words. His dreams don't translate into substance. It's just talk. It's just talk. We can be pretty confident this is a reasonable interpretation because verse 7 explains further. For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. So his dreams are not revelatory. They indicate the folly of a dreamer, of a talker, who will never listen and only wants to talk, only has things to say. If this were referring to revelatory dreams... Solomon would not refer to him in this way as being empty and vain. He would never describe revelatory dreams as emptiness. So Solomon is emphasizing the superficiality of this dreamer. Many words won't listen. Boy, you don't have to shout out names. Just describe anybody you know. Wow. Wow. People who love to go into great detail about their personal dreams and their visions. Well, I've had a a couple people do a drive-by to me on stuff like that. There were revelatory dreams in Scripture. There were many in the Old Testament. Did you you know that there are only two people in Scripture who ever had the ability to interpret dreams? Only two. Joseph in the Old Testament. And who's the other one? Daniel. Daniel in the Old Testament. Joseph in Egypt. Daniel in Babylon. Oh, and then your cousin Bobby up in Detroit, who's a Pentecostal. There's your laughing. That's a, that's a funny part, huh? 
Got to break the ice a little bit. This is serious stuff. Serious, serious stuff. I was taken by it this week preparing this message. I listen too, by the way. Do you know that? I listen a lot. Um, throughout the week, reading is listening, right, Gerald? You're always listening to the wisdom of, of those who've gone before. Um, listening to sermons and messages. Part of the reason I was disappointed that MacArthur had never preached through this. But you listen to learn. You're always, always listening. In most scriptural occurrences, a dream sent by God is for the individual. Abimelech was warned to stay away from Abraham's wife. The Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him to take Mary as his wife. Later on, Joseph again is given a dream that told him, take the child Jesus down to Egypt, right? You'll be safe down there. So I I wouldn't declare that God would never give a dream today. I don't think we could do that. On occasion, he might, but we can declare authoritatively that dreams, visions, other personal experience are not authoritatively revelatory for the church today. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, Let no one keep defrauding you by, of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. That's what Paul has to say about things that are seen, visions and dreams in view there. Folks, many churches are defrauded. And a great amount of of spiritual abuse occurs in some circles uh, due to an infatuation with personal experiences. Dreams and visions and personal experiences. Paul says we are not to be defrauded. So if a person were to give a, or if God were to give a person a dream or a vision, it's only for that person. It's for that person. It's not for the rest of us. God doesn't speak to his church today through private experience that only one person sees. He speaks through, to us through his word that we all see. That's how God speaks to His church. Through something we can all see together. He warns us to beware of people who ramble into many words about things that they have seen. I'm not a dream interpreter. I don't know what your dream means. In New Testament examples, in the New Testament, in this dispensation, The person who received the dream knew exactly what God was telling them. They didn't need an interpreter. God has not given you a dream for me. People tried that one on me before. I always tell them, get back with God and tell Him to forward that on to me, would you? Yeah. What we normally observe with with dreamers are people who won't listen they like to talk, just as we are warned in Ecclesiastes. Uh, my experience, I, I've, I've had a little bit of experience engaging in this, not by choice. Um, but those claiming supernatural revelation, my experience has consistently been, they always doctrinally diverge at some critical point in Scripture. 
They always diverge in some critical point. A critical flaw that exposes them as a false prophet. One didn't believe in hell. Problem there. Another didn't believe that Christ was the only path to heaven. Assured me that their dream was for me and that it was for real. You go do a little bit of examining and you're like, whoa. And they'll start flattering you. Be careful. That's, that's the first step is to flatter you. To draw you in. Don't allow yourselves to get roped in by their many words. You'll also notice that they refuse to listen to any sort of correction on doctrine. Not always, but often. Dreams and visions. The, a lot of time, not, not always, but you'll see that, that a woman has um, seized the leadership or the teaching role of the church. I've run into that multiple times. They're usually egalitarian. Um, No distinction between male and female in the church. That is a big problem we are facing today. Big, big problem. It's getting everywhere. And it's not a reflection of God's Word. It is a reflection of the culture. It is a reflection uh, of the, uh, the women's movement to, to get rid of gender roles, to erase gender roles. Look what that has turned into in the last five years. you got people in authority now, and civil authority, telling us we shouldn't distinguish between who's a man or who's a woman or what they want to be. Uh, no, under close examination, uh, these folks always exhibit a critical doctrinal error. There is no new prophecy today, folks. Revelation chapter 22, uh, you are not to add to the prophecy of this book, says Revelation. That's the final book uh, of Scripture. Not to add to the words that are written in this book. We have all that we need as Christ's church to guide us in spirit and in truth. People who are fertile with words but refuse to heed scriptural truth always get themselves into trouble. Always get themselves into trouble. We see that in verse 4. When a person talks a lot without thinking, they talk about the great things that they're going to do for God. Let me tell you what I'm going to do for God. And in this passage, it's displayed in the form of vows that are made to God in the presence of many witnesses. Vows are permitted... They're fairly common in the Old Testament, but let me read what a theologian named Michael Eaton has written about these, uh, these verses. He says, quote, The vow in ancient Israel was a promise to God, which might be part of prayer for blessing, or it might be a spontaneous expression of gratitude. It might take the form of a promise of allegiance. It might be a free will offering or the dedication of a child as a Nazarite. That's the story of Hannah he's referencing there. As in the matter of prayer, haste in taking a vow is cautioned against elsewhere. Here the preacher warns against delay and evasion. Pay what you vow. Failure in these respects is the mark of fools. been said it's much easier to make a promise than to keep it therefore verse 4 warns when you make a vow to God do not be late in paying it 
For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Folks, beware of making vows. Because the, the frail condition of the human flesh, the sinful flesh, I resist making vows. I truly do. Also, the words commanded by Jesus in our earlier scripture reading make me think, what about wedding vows? It's actually the context, if you remember from our scripture reading earlier, that, that Jesus is addressing when he talks about not making oaths or vows. It's his lesson in the Sermon on the Mount. He just finished correcting those who easily disregard or quickly dismiss uh, marriage vows, I would say this. I would heed Jesus' words. Let your yes be yes. Keep your vows. Do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? I do. Yes. That's what Jesus is talking about. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no, rather than relying upon vows to impress people, simply be a person who keeps your word. Do what you say. Anything beyond this, says Christ, is evil. In verse 6, then, we shouldn't be surprised if life becomes a little bit difficult after we've failed to keep our vows. In the context of vows, Solomon writes, Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the works of your hands? Why force God's hand in the matter? He he isn't going to hold you guiltless. And then the messenger arrives. The messenger comes to collect what is due. Probably not an angel. Your translation might say an angel of God. Uh, Most think that this messenger would have been a messenger of the temple priesthood who came to collect what had been vowed openly. If you want to consider it an angel, I'm okay with that too. Either way, when a vow has been given, don't say, oh, that was a mistake. Don't do it. Don't evade the vow's consequences. You won't get out of it. You won't get out. So don't be, don't let hasty and impulsive speech cause you to sin by offering more than you're willing to pay. Why make God angry? Why provoke Him to destroy the work of your hands? Does God impose penalties for broken vows? Oh, He does. And he will. Folks, the close here will be worth your price of admission today. Oh, the many dreams, the many vows, the many careless words that form this domino of broken vows leading leading to an empty life, life of emptiness. It'd be wiser to first listen And fear God, as Solomon says, is our nation suffering immensely from habitual broken 
vows. Wow. Unsatisfied vows. And it suggested the solution now is to just no longer take the vows. We'll just live in sin and live with it. That that ain't going to fix anything. Just exchanging problems. How about Christians? Do we ever break vows? Speaking specifically of vows to God now. Or do we just follow Jesus wholeheartedly and, and just not make vows? Like Jesus says, just don't take an oath. Don't make one. Maybe that would be wiser. Maybe we can skate by. Maybe we, maybe we can do an end around if we just avoid the formal language of making a vow. Maybe we just don't say, I solemnly vow. Maybe that will get us around it, huh? No, no. It is a fact. He knows your mind. He knows your words. Any bargain with God through your words or through your thoughts is making an oath to Him. It's a vow. The following are a few examples of commonly broken vows that we have uttered to God and in the presence of God. A couple of these originate from Doug O'Donnell. One is... Lord, if you give me a wife, I promise that we will not be intimate before we are married. Lord, if you give us children, we promise to read them the Bible every day, take them to church every Sunday, and save monthly for the college tuition. Is that a vow before God? Oh, yeah, yeah. Lord, if you give me that much-needed raise... I'll give half to the church. And I promise I'll come home early every night and spend my evenings playing with kids, not watching any television. These are too familiar, aren't they? Too familiar. I'll keep going. Lord, if you give me this gift, I'll use it for your glory and to serve your church. Gerald and I have heard this many times. I've probably uttered it at some point. We're going to get our family back to church and then stay up on Saturday nights till 3 a.m. watching movies and eating pizza. How about this one? I believe prayer is powerful and then never show up to prayer meeting. Will you please pray for me? God is in heaven and we are on earth. He knows where we are and He knows whether or not we're busy. It takes a lot of load off pastors, don't it? It's great. I don't have to worry about it. Insist worship is important, but make excuses not to sing. Ooh, here's a couple tough ones at the end. We need to get out of here. Baptism testimonials, committing your time, talent, and treasure, your life to honor Christ, but then live for the world? Is that a broken vow? I had to throw this in at the end. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How about the membership covenant that you have signed on the back of your application before you've handed it in to the pastor? We better brush up on these things. Wow. 
and then we sit at home. Broken promises, broken vows before God, before His presence, and we wonder why nothing goes right. Just can't get my life going. Why can't I get my life together? Solomon says, Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? When I began today, I stated that Christianity is not a laughing matter. It's not something funny. Being in the temple of God, His physical presence amongst us, it's serious business. It is serious, serious business. We have all listened. We have all heard. How should we respond? It's not that hard. God's grace is more than sufficient. Four quick closing points. Number one, I don't like pressuring children into vows that we decide they should make. Don't do that to your kids. Number two, each Sunday we draw near to listen, thereby we learn about God, who He is, about His nature, so that we think before we speak. Number three, since we all stumble in many ways, we repent and ask for forgiveness. Not to cancel the vow or wiggle out of the vow, but that we will finally fulfill the vows that we have uttered before God. Number four, this is the most important one. Folks, there are some things that we have promised. There are some vows that we have made that cannot be reversed. You can't go back in time and undo them. There's just too much water that has passed under the bridge. Therefore, God is our loving Father who invites us to confess our sins and to receive forgiveness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'd say we pray for that right now. The closing prayer. Think in my head of how many things that I said that I would do for God and I failed. Let's pray. Father, we could not count the times that we've uttered things that we would do for you, that we would do for your kingdom, uh, not only in our minds, but in the presence of witnesses. And Lord, how often we have failed you. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lord, bless our lives. We ask you to strengthen us to be men and women of God, to teach our children to live for Christ. Lord, we ask that we would be wise, that we would think before we speak. And Lord, we're, we're so grateful, so enormously grateful that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Lord, we invite your blessing. We invite uh, your hand and your word to guide our lives. And Lord, we would ask that each and every day going forward that we would think before we speak and that we would use the rest of our lives for the glory of your Son. Amen.